Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I just happen to be married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon is a practicing nurse anesthetist for 20-plus years. Mm. Oh, God, and we got to take that president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles, and a lot of our listenership knows Sharon personally. Our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs around the country. I think we have a great show for you today, and we're continuing our series on CRNA historical importance. And today, we're going to be talking about ANA founder, Agatha Hodgins. And with us today, we have two special guests who've been with us before and probably need no introduction, very well known around the CRNA community, and that is Sandy Ouellette and Nancy Marie, both past presidents of the ANA and have a lot of positions they've held throughout their history with nurse anesthetists, and we're going to turn it over to them and let them get started. I like it. So, Nancy, why don't you start us off and tell us about the early life of Agatha? Well, Agatha was born in 1877. It's hard for me to really think about her being born that far away, but yes, she was. But she was originally born in, in Toronto, Canada, Really? Uh-huh. You know, our president right now of AANA is a Canadian, too. Gary Bridges is Canadian. Well, then he has something in common with Aggie. Well, they might be related. <laughs> Her father Let's not start was... any rumors. <laughs> Her father was an Episcopal minister, and he wanted Agatha to live a very quiet social life in a sheltered home. And, of course, as we go on, you will see that Agatha did not do that. She graduated from junior college in Canada and then immigrated to Boston in 1898. And there she entered the Boston Hospital School of Nursing. She entered it in February 23rd, 1898, and she graduated on March 4th, 1990. So it was a two-year program, actually, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of amazed me at that point 19, in time. Not 1990. I'm sorry. 19, 19, 18, 18, 18. She was in school for a long time. <laughs> wow. 1898. She was a child she, genius. <laughs> she graduated in 1900. I'm sorry. Um, but, um, and it was Boston City Hospital Training School for Nursing. So they were called training schools then. And so that's kind of her early history. And she, of course, went from there to what Sandy's going to talk about is her role in anesthesia. 
Yeah, but I think it's interesting what Sharon just mentioned about our current president, but also it's interesting that the founder of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists was from Canada, and even today there are no No. nurse anesthetists or no major anesthesia programs for nurses in Canada. So how lucky we were to get this star here. And um, one time they had a a meeting outside the United States, and I think it was somewhere in Canada, and probably under her influence. Mm-hmm. One of our annual meetings, only one time went outside the United States. Well, Sandy, why is that? Why, why are there no CRNAs in Canada? All of the educational programs in terms of the European, or many of them, are just anesthesiologists, physician anesthesiologists. Now, now we have many European countries that have nurse anesthetists, but places like the UK, Canada, Ireland, Scotland, all that started out, you know, as a physician specialist, they still hold on to that. And there have been attempts and there's been interest in their governments to have an additional provider, but they fight it tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. And these they call themselves anesthetists in those countries, but they'd rather have something like an anesthesia assistant. And in the UK, they did develop a provider at one time like an operating room department assistant or something like that but they do not want anyone that's licensed as a nurse because I guess they don't want to recreate what they see is an error that was done here mm-hmm. um, but they don't really get it because we were here first right that's the what nurse, I was thinking the, 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 you know, nurse, maybe uh, we made the error yeah, no, uh, <laughs> in this country Nurses were the first specialists in anesthesia. Across the pond, it was the physician that was the specialist in anesthesia. So it's just the way we grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, Sandy, how did Miss Hodgins get involved in anesthesia to begin with? Well, after she graduated, as Nancy said, in 1900, she moved to Cleveland, uh, where she became a head nurse at Lakeside Hospital. And at that particular hospital, there was a pretty renowned surgeon, Dr. George Cryle. And Dr. Cryle had a real interest in surgery for thyroid disease. And he had recognized that there was not as much need for muscle relaxation for thyroid surgery as for other procedures. So he was trying to find a technique other than ether or chloroform, and he was interested in the gas oxygen technique is what they called it, and that would be nitrous oxide Mm -hmm. and oxygen. And he had learned that from a dentist, actually, a Dr. Charles Tedder. So that was his interest, and at that particular time, they had no specialist giving anesthesia, and he was interested in having his own anesthetist, to have a uh, personal permanent anesthetist. And he knew that Miss Hodgins was a nurse with a reputation for intelligence and diligence and patience. And he felt that's exactly what he needed to become his special nurse anesthetist. And so he, she had no idea that this was going to be her future. So in 1908, Dr. Crowell put Agatha in charge of anesthesia. She had no warning, it is said, about her future. And she really wasn't she wasn't feeling that she could really do it, but she told Dr. Crowell she would do it as long as he would remember that she always gave her best. She always gave her best. So then he had to teach her because she had not had any education in anesthesia. So he he taught her the art of anesthesia by first anesthetizing rabbits 
and then dogs. And uh, from rabbits has said that she became skilled in caring for children, Mm -hmm. uh, pediatric anesthesia. And one of the things that I really enjoyed is she walked the halls many nights after probably working all day long like a dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, she walked the halls many nights just listening to patients breathe, trying to detect subtle differences in respiratory patterns. Don't you do that at night with your spouse in the bed? (laughs) I constantly I can't tell you how many times Sarah will reach over and say, you're obstructing. obstructing." I'm glad you mentioned that because I've said many times if she was doing it now, she would probably think an obstructed airway was normal in 50% of the patients. Is that true? Uh, but anyway, she did master anesthesia, and it was Dr. Crowell that put her there. Also, one of the things I think was interesting about her education and the rabbits and the dogs was that Dr. Crowell wanted her to also know the symptoms of death because— The symptoms of death? Yeah, hmm. because at that time, remember— Not breathing? No, no. Heart not beating? But, you know, more than that, symptoms before they actually die. Uh, That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. And I think that's worth mentioning because, see, at that time, they didn't have the things that we have. They didn't have the ability to have a pulse ox. They didn't have an EKG. I'm not sure whether or not she could even take a blood pressure. And so they went by the signs and Mm -hmm. stages. And if you go back to some of the really old, old anesthesia books, you'll see that there were signs and stages, not just for ether, but they had signs and stages for pentothal, they had signs and stages for nitrous oxide, and for chloroform. And so, you know, really, when you think about what she was doing, you know, she was going by those signs and stages. And so that was what he was trying to get her to see, as well as it taught her to do children, so that she would know where her how close to the end her patients were getting. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. I do see what you're saying. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We, we talk about dogs and anesthesia, and I'm going to go off on a sidebar here just because I remember all the dollar signs from this. So our dog, he would oh, eat bet. stuff all the time. I work with a doctor. His dog eats socks. Cost him $3,000 for ours ate rugs, socks. It didn't matter. He ate everything. So... One day we get this call, and the dog's extremely sick. We take him to the emergency vet, and they say the dog is eating something, and his uh, intestines are pulled together, and we need to go in and do surgery. So they were like, okay, how much is this going to cost? He said, three to $4,000. And I said, bye to the dog. And my daughter and my wife said, no. And I said, okay, three to $4,000 then. So basically, <laughs> now this is the interesting part about this for you guys. So I, I know as an anesthetist, the first thing you're trained to do is to check the airway, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's the same thing my wife thought. So they go ahead and they do the surgery, and we go in and we see the dog afterwards, and they say, well, it was interesting. The dog had a, a piece of rope tied around the base of its tongue. And when we went in, we found the rope, and we, we went up to the base of the tongue, and we cut it, and everything was fine. And I said, you charged me three or $4,000 for that. Why didn't you check the airway? And they said, we don't do that in dogs. <laughs> So I learned something. Yeah, yeah. That keep cost me three to four thousand dollars, <laughs> and they didn't check the airway. If they would have, they would have seen the string tied around the base, and they could have cut it. Boom, we'd have been home in fifteen minutes. <laughs> that's right. You know. But uh, anyway, so when we're talking about dogs and airways, well, Nancy used to intubate the dogs. Uh, tell that story. You told me it's been years since I heard you tell that story. Well, when I was in graduate school, 
I was supposed to do these dog labs, and I did one, and it just about tore me up because they were doing all this on dogs, and, of course, they euthanized the dogs as soon as the lab was over. But one of the things that happened was because I just could not bear to do this to a dog when I didn't feel I had to because we what they were doing, we saw done or did in the operating rooms, and I didn't have to kill anything to do it. Hmm. And so the first time I went to dog lab, I told the um, PhD students that I was working with that it said the first thing you had to do was intubate the dog. And I said, I'll intubate the dog if you do everything else. <laughs> and I remembered Helen Voss told me one time or told our class one time that a dog's trachea is so large, you don't need a laryngoscope to intubate them. That 99 times out of 100, if you do a blind intubation, it will go in the trachea and not the esophagus. And so I intubated the dog. I just opened his mouth, pulled his tongue back, and stuck the tube in. Well, the professor came over and he said, who intubated this dog? Well, of course, all the graduate students backed up against the wall, and there I was, you know. And he said, I said, I did. He said, you did not intubate the dog. I said, yes, I did, sir. And he said, no, you didn't. And I said, yes, I did. He said, this is in the stomach. I said, well, if it's in the stomach, why is air going in and out? What they he meant in the directions was they were supposed to trach the dog. Oh. And so anyway, he came back later on, and he said, do you think you could come in the other rooms and do this again? Because they're so into the trach, they're never going to finish this lab. <laughs> so I went in and intubated the dogs. Well, my advisor pled with the people at the med school that there was no need for me to do these dog labs because I was having nightmares about them. And the deal was that I didn't have to do the dog labs as long as I went over before every one of the dog labs and intubated every one of the dogs before any of the med students and PhD students got in there. And I did that for two or three years. Well, we know who to call the next time your dog eats something. I went to intubate the dog, and I told the guy who brought them up, I said, I'm not intubating this dog. This dog is dead. And he said, it's not. He was an orthopedic surgeon, right? (laughs) I said, it is. I said, why in the world did you give this dog? Can't you see that this dog is an old dog? Why did you do this? He said, it's not dead. I said, then if it's not dead, why is it not breathing? Why are his gums and his tongue cyanotic? And why doesn't he have a pulse? So they had to go get another dog. Oh. <laughs> the moral of the story. I, I guess I shouldn't have taken us down that route. Should have, but, uh, well, on that me. note, let's talk about anesthesia techniques. Uh, what, you know, what were some of the early anesthesia techniques that Agatha used, Nancy? Any? Well, Agatha was known for nitrous oxide oxygen. That was really what she was known for. And we'll talk about one of the other early anesthetists who was really the perfectionist at ether and chloroform form. But Dr. Kral, as Sandy said, really liked nitrous oxide oxygen because he really didn't need the muscle relaxation for his cyboidectomies, which was what his real interest was in. Agatha did go, however, to Mayo Clinic and observed Mrs. McGaw 
uh, who was the premier ether dropper, and she did learn to use ether, and she did use ether in chloroform, but she really preferred nitrous oxide oxygen. But she uh, did a lot of patients, and I think one of these say that she did 575 patients, which she kept notes on, and she compared her page, her technique to, in her cases, to the ones that she used ether on. So she really studied very hard about anesthesia and quite frankly is known to have learned everything there was to possibly learn at that point in time about anesthesia. But Dr. Kral said that she could provide adequate anesthesia while maintaining a pink circulation. <laughs> That's a good thing. You wonder what percent nitrous oxide the rest of them were giving, don't you? Ninety percent? Ninety-five? Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> that, wow. But there was another doctor who came. A lot of doctors, a lot of doctors came to observe Dr. Crawl because he was a really noted surgeon. There's some time. instruments named like after the, the Crawl, like the Mayo brothers were. Mm-hmm. But when they would come, one of the, they would be more fascinated uh, with Agatha than they really were with Dr. Crawl. And so one of them was Dr. Arthur Dean Bevan, and he watched her, and he watched Dr. Crawl, and he watched what was going on in that in Dr. Crawl's operating room, and he said that. An anesthetist and the operating room nurse were far more important. They were less important than the surgeon. Say that one more time. They were less important than the operator is what they call the surgeon then. So they were little, a little less important is what he said. <laughs> but the other thing about Lakeside and Agatha is that that was the first uh, hospital that manufactured gas the the manufacturing of the gases and they were piped into the operating room so that was a very new thing at that point in time so anyway dr crawl noted after watching as sandy said gas oxygen technique he said i am convinced it is the safest of all anesthetics in the hands of experts and most dangerous in hands of one not an expert I'm not really sure I agree with that because, I, to me, ether and chloroform were more dangerous than nitrous oxide. But depends on what percent nitrous oxide you're giving. Well, it could That's be true. like Sandy used to tell us: it's not what's in the bottle; <laughs> it's right. who tips the bottle. That's correct. That's right. But Dr. Crow would not let interns do anesthesia with nitrous oxide. He did report to the American Surgical Association. 10,787 cases that they had done with either ether or nitrous oxide or nitrous oxide supplemented with ether because what they learned how to do or what uh, Agatha would do is she would uh, put them to sleep with nitrous oxide if she needed more from an anesthetic than nitrous oxide gave and that would get them through stage two which was the excitement stage Mm with the nitrous oxide so it wasn't as turbulent of a stage and then switched to ether for the rest of the anesthetic so that was one of the things that Agatha had learned how to do also in 1911 there was an article published in the American Journal of Nursing about the work that was being done at Lakeside in Cleveland by the nurses and the nurse anesthetist 
So, and again, like I say, many people came not just to observe Dr. Crawl, but there were also nurses that were sent to observe Agatha. And one of the people who went to had been to observe and was talking to some people who were going to go, he said that George will talk a lot, mm-hmm. but you watch Agatha. <laughs> so, and the was, operator just thinks they're the most important in the room. <laughs> And in 1909, Florence Henderson went to a meeting, and she was from Mayo, and she was asked to present a paper, which she did, and Agatha was asked to comment on it. And the audience evidently must have really got into this because there were more sparks that came from the comments from the audience than from the actual presentation. Uh And the sparks came from the training of nurse anesthetist, the weaknesses of the practice, the future hopes, because at that point in time there was no consistency and there were really no nurse anesthesia training programs other than coming and watching someone like Agatha and then doing some a few anesthetics under supervision and then you would go home and you would kind of own your own. So Agatha left with a real bee in her bonnet which ultimately, as we go on, you will realize that she got very into and became very important about the training and education of nurse anesthetists. And she did go back, and in 1912, Lakeside began to train a few people, and this was really the first hospital-based school of nurse anesthesia. But not only did Agatha teach nurses to do anesthesia, she also taught physicians. I saw that. Uh, how many applied for mm-hmm. the class? 120 and 40 docs, 120 mm-hmm. nurses and 40 docs. Is it still the same way today? What? Do the nurse anesthetists still teach the docs today? Or? Oh, I should open that can of worms. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. So back to Agatha. <laughs> We're up to about World War One. I'm sure she had something to do in World War One, Sandy. Yeah, not it, that you were there. That's right. That's right. And you know, I've known I've I've known so many of our stars, and I appreciate them so much. But I want everyone to know I did not know personally Agatha Hodgins, okay. although I respect her to the nth degree. But her unit, called the Lakeside Unit, sailed to France to assist in World War One in December nineteen and fourteen. They worked uh, on the front line, and I know that from being so interested in a North Carolina native who went over there as well, Annie Penland. And uh, they were on the front line in those what they call casualty clearing stations. So that's where Agatha found herself. Like she was doing in the United States, she not only administered anesthesia, but she was so good at it, others wanted to be taught by her. So she really taught what was the art of anesthesia. And she and Dr. Crowell had demonstrated the use of nitrous oxygen uh, superior to other anesthetics in patients in shock. It maintained the blood pressure much better than the ether chloroform technique, and especially those had been gassed with chemical gases during the war. So when the Lakeside unit was replaced by the Harvard unit, a very famous person, Dr. Harvey Cushion, asked Agatha Hodgins to please stay and to teach others her very special technique. And she did that. She stayed until 1915. 
in France. Dr. Crowell only stayed two months, so he, he did stay that period of time, but she stayed much longer. Nitrous oxide was accepted as a superior technique during the war, but they didn't have people trained to administer this anesthesia. And so that led to the big question, who is going to teach this? How is it going to be taught? And who will administer it? And so when Agatha Hodgins did return to the United States uh, later on, she became the program director as well as the chief nurse anesthetist at Lakeside Hospital. So as Nancy said a minute ago, this was some of the beginnings of a very formalized program rather than on-the-job training that had been so important during that time. It's also important to know that that program closed in about two years after it had opened due to a controversy through the State Board of Medicine about nurses administering anesthesia. Boy, this sounds familiar. And it was that same old famous case the 1917 Frank versus South that upheld the opinion of when nurses are administering anesthesia, it is a practice of nursing. So after that came out, after the Frank versus South was finalized, then Lakeside reopened its program in 1918. And getting back to what you said, they had applications from 140 nurses and 30 physicians. So she was inclusive. You know, she was willing to teach anesthesia to anyone with an interest. But as Nancy said earlier, there were no standards. In the 30s, there were absolutely no educational standards. And that was very troubling to this woman of such great vision. So she, in 1923, organized one of the first forms for nurse anesthetists. And it really started with the Alumni Association of the Lakeside School of Anesthesia. And it was that informal group that was really the nucleus of what would become the uh, National Association of Nurse Anesthetists and later to become the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. So it all started there. And that's why in, what was it, 2006, when we celebrated our 75th anniversary, of our organization, that meeting was held in Cleveland, back where it all began with Agatha Hodgins at Lakeside. Wow. Wow. Sounds like Agatha was a driven young lady, very smart, kind of reminded me of the three women that sit with me today. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about, or both of you can, about the formation of the ANA and how it kind of came out of this group. I'll start. And um because it was something that really got my attention in that history book by, by Virginia Thatcher. And what she was alluding to is that in times of prosperity, professional people give little thought to principles of group survival. And they're just satisfied with the, the most tenuous of bonds with our fellow workers. It is only when these common problems become too big for individual solution that the average person is conscious of the protection that can be found in an organization. And if you look at where these people were, that's exactly where they were Mm -hmm. at that time because they had just had those major challenges. They just had a positive legal opinion in Frank versus South. But somehow they realized that this was going to have to, it would probably keep reoccurring, and they had to organize. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds very familiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keep in mind, too, that one of the things that was going on during part of this struggle or the beginning struggles that we have continued to, ha- to have over the years is a lot of this happened during the Depression. And so physicians 
wanted money. You know, they wanted to support their families, and so physicians who were interested in anesthesia. So that did play some part in oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. the beginnings of some of the struggles. But, of course, as we go on, it gets even bigger than that. But one of the things that Agatha... And Sandy mentioned that they named the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists the um, National Association of Nurse Anesthetists, but really before that it was called the International Association of Nurse Anesthetists. And I've said this many, many times, I'm really glad they changed it to the American Association instead of the National Association because I didn't want to belong to NANA. Because you just that, want to be called Nana. No. No. <laughs> no. No. But anyway, to go further, I mean, she did, on June 17, 1931, there was a meeting of nurse anesthetists from 12 states, and that is when we got the charter for the National Association, which became eventually the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. And Agatha was elected the first president. And the other thing I want to point out is I know that we have grown and spread our wings as an association. And so now we're interested in practice and what impacts practice and standards of practice and this, that, and the other. But the real focus from Agatha for starting the association was education. It was because at that point in time, there was a desperate need for a standardization of the education of nurse anesthetists. And so she already had conceived, although it was a while before all this came forward, that there needed to be standards, there needed to be, she even talked about uh, some type of testing. She talked about um, being registered at the state level, that kind of thing. And then as this went on, and she was thinking about this organization, the American, Sandy can jump in here, but the American Nursing Association wanted to have the nurse anesthetist. But they were group us with office nurses and nurse anesthetists. Well, this was not Aggie's dream, believe me. She really felt that that we needed to be under surgical services. We did not need to be under nursing. And so that was really her goal, was to to eventually form an association that was separate from the American Nursing Association and that in the hospital setting we should be in surgical services and not under nursing services. And, you know, Nancy, if you remember, and I think back about her actions and why she was doing it, I sometimes wonder if she didn't go to the ANA because it was PC. It was politically correct. Right, just uh, she really needed to do it. I never saw anything that looked like she was so disappointed or disappointed at all when we were denied. It was the American Nurse Association that finally denied association with this group of nurse anesthetists. Oh, don't you know they regret that one? Uh, probably. And um, at the time, I came across a point that Miss Hodgins said, it is our firm opinion that the interest of nurse anesthetists will be best served by having a distinct organization chiefly concerned with achieving certain objectives. And Helen Lamb, who we'll talk about on another day, she is the mother of nurse anesthesia education, also said at the same time 
I feel definitely nothing is to be gained and much lost with premature decisions regarding affiliation. A small organization with high standards will accomplish our objectives more successfully than a larger one half-heartedly concerned with anesthesia and nursing. And I think that probably that is absolutely true. In fact, having this discussion at one time with a former dean of a school of nursing, I said, I wonder sometimes what would have happened if ANA had opened its arms and said, come on in, you know, we're going to recognize you as the first specialty group of nursing, which we were. Right. And the, this uh, friend in nursing looked at me and said, probably not near as far along as you are right Right now, because again, we were focused on our issues, and that was survival uh, at the time. So we've got her through World War One and the ANA formation. Yes. So yeah, I'm sure that this is not the end of her road here. She probably didn't retire and put her feet up. So what do we know about Agatha at this point? Well, actually, Agatha did retire. And I'll put that in In name only. Kind of like both of y'all, right? Well, no. (laughs) She she retired in 1933. And the reason she retired was because of illness. Hmm. And it wasn't too long after that that she had a major heart attack, and she was in the hospital for six months. With a heart attack? Mm Mm-hmm. She remained hospitalized for six months, and that was also in 1933. Now, having said that, she really wasn't able, as I understand it, to come back and be as physically active in what was going on with the association. But she was always a part of the trustees of the association. And until the day that she passed away, she was always giving feedback into the association and was involved in it, just not in the forefront, I guess is one way to say it. You know, what What I've read is uh, the organization was organized and moving along pretty well. I think she spent most of her time as a consultant, really, looking at certification and accreditation and uh, moving the organization along in those lines. Don't you think, Nancy? Yeah, I agree with that. And like I say, you know, and of course, people like Helen Lamb, when Agatha was president, Helen Lamb became the first, I guess we would call her head of the Department of Education, although there wasn't a Department of Education. But she was in the forefront, of course, of developing the standards, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, she was one of the big ones that carried on and had a really strong relationship with Agatha as far as being sure that her dreams were to come true. Helen also gave, uh, Helen Lamb it was, made the best tribute to Agatha Hodgins, and it was published actually in the journal of the ANA in 1946. And she said, and I have the quote here, her efforts on behalf of the advancement of her profession, sincerity, courage, vision, enthusiasm, inspiring leadership, and all she undertook, and unselfish service to mankind, have all contributed to the betterment of the world, her country, and her profession. As a first in our profession, Agatha Hodges set an example of which we may justly be proud and hope in a small measure to emulate. And I think when I look at that from time to time, what a beautiful tribute to someone that did so much for so many. And her legacy still lives on. Did she ever get married or? No, she didn't have time, I guess. No, no, she didn't. 
some of the other founders did, but it was later in life, like Alice McGall that we'll talk about another time. She was 48 when she got married. They were just so busy. I mean, I could see them contributing everything mm-hmm. to this profession and to their vocation and and so on. Well, you know, Helen Voss told me one time that back in this era, and someone in her era of, you know, growing up, that you had to make up your mind whether or not you wanted to be married and have a family or whether to have a career. But at Mm. that point in time, the two did not go together. And so you either were one or the other. But again, like Sandy said, you know, she really put everything into nurse anesthesia and ultimately into formally organizing it, which in that day to organize the first nursing specialty was just phenomenal in of itself. And the other thing that I want to point out too is I think that when you look at what Agatha has done and what she did and how in that time, even in this time, it it was a tremendous undertaking and took an extremely smart person to come up with all that she did. But she really was a little lady. She was really? not a big person at all. She was quite small, very petite lady. So I think we tend to think when we look at our our forefathers and the people that we look at as heroes, we make giants out of them in our mind. We see them as being bigger than life, but she really was a very tiny lady. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I think anything that is worthwhile requires sacrifice, and she definitely did sacrifice mm-hmm. for the good of all anesthetists that were then and now. So, you know, I've been around A and A meetings and uh, enough to have heard of the Agatha Hodgins Award. But tell me a little bit about the significance of that uh, and what that means when someone wins that award. When I was asked to present in honor of her 140th birthday. I thought, well, I had 75 minutes, and there's a lot you can say about Agatha Hodgins, but I thought that I had a little too much time there. And so I asked that we could invite every person that had received the Agatha Hodgins Award attending the meeting to please sit up front, and uh, I would let them speak for about two to three minutes on exactly what it meant to them. And as you know, the Agatha Hodgins Award was first established in 1974, and Ruth Satterfield, who was a a very powerful educator at the time, was her first recipient of that award. Since that time and up until last year when Nancy, my colleague here, received it, there's been 45 people to receive the Agatha Hodgins Award. And uh, it was interesting to me that every one of them had a different perspective in terms of what it meant to them. But they were all in sync that had it not been for Agatha Hodgins, we would not certainly have the profession that that we have today. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was interesting to hear all of them mention that. But that is the highest award that is bestowed upon a member of, of our organization and uh, one that I'm proud of, and Nancy and, and uh, my husband yes. both have you, received. You do know you've got – Dick was in here earlier, so we, we just had three Agatha Award winners in our presence. Out of the 45. Out of the 45. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Look numbers, at him. Numbers. I know. He's already doing the math in his head. 
You know, I think it's, uh-huh. a, it's important to say that, you know, after an illness that started in 1933, and she continued to work, she continued to lecture, she continued to speak, and she was sort of um, moving us into accreditation certification. But unfortunately, she passed away in 1945. It wasn't until 2007 that a former past president, Virginia Gaffey, or Jenny Gaffey, we call her, from Massachusetts, took it upon herself to find out where the last home was that Agatha Hodgins lived and find out where she was buried. And she was buried in Chatham, Massachusetts. And so in 2007, they had permission to put a marker on her grave, something to the point that the founder of the... um, of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. And so they marked it at that time. And there were a number of students and CRNAs and people that were at that very special ceremony that day. And Patrick Downey, who is president of the Diamond Club, which is a club of all ANA past presidents, he was there. He he really has a nice way of saying things. And, and he said that, that day she left a gift not only to us but to the world. You always have a rock, no matter what your message, and she is our rock. And she, uh, very important, and Nancy just corrected me, Patrick's our treasurer, not our president. But anyway, he's been certainly our pillar for a long, long time in the uh, past president's club. So it was interesting that Jenny Gaffey told me uh, later that after she left, the woman that owned the house where Agatha lived, they were all running around the house trying to peek in the windows It was closed because that was the last place that she had lived. And uh, she called her and she said, um, you know, I have something I think you might want. And so she said, okay, and she went and picked it up and it was a stack of letters that were tied with a pink ribbon and it was correspondence to Agatha and others when she was in um, when she was in France during World War One and the woman said I grew up in this house my brother and I played all over this house and I have never seen this and the other day I just went and opened this door in the attic and right in front of me couldn't miss it was a stack of letters that were there. And so um, I told a friend of mine, I said, well, I guess it's in the fate. She said, no, it was just a big wind that blew it after the rafters. I don't know what it was doing in the rafters, but that's where it was. But at any rate, I said, well, Jenny, what are you going to do with those letters? She said, I'm reading them. What do you think? And so now she's giving them to the archives, I'm sure. And uh, I said, if you find anything that doesn't look just right, just keep it to yourself, because we are definitely not tarnishing this woman's halo at this particular point in time. But I'm glad that that was done for, too. Very nice. Sounds like Agatha's huge shoes for everybody to fill. Absolutely. Do either of you have any closing thoughts? No, uh, other than to say, you know, when I look at what she did, I know I could have not even come close to doing that. They had almost no agents, really. They had no monitoring and they became experts at it. It was truly the art of anesthesia. And had they not been as successful as they were and been placed where they were, at places like Lakeside Hospital and Mayo Clinic, where people came from all over the country and all over the world, and they also kept records. They did research back then, and they kept records of 10,000 cases or 16,000 cases without a single anesthetic death. If they had not done all that, 
I'm not sure we would have ever evolved as the first specialist in the United States in anesthesia. And as we all know, it was the nurse, it was not the physician, and we grew by leaps and bounds. And even today, we have a lot more to help us out, but we can be proud of where we came from. And we need to, to really thank this woman and those like her for making it possible for us to have all the things that we've had in this profession. It's quite the legacy. Nancy, I don't want to stop you from talking, Nancy. The last time I nearly got hit in here, so please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I certainly am not going to play down anything that Ms. Hodgins did because she obviously was a tremendous person, a tremendous anesthetist, and we have gained so much from her. But one thing that I like to think about when I think about her, to try to keep me from thinking that she is bigger than life, is one of the things that is in Thatcher's history book is that when Agatha, she was very, very good at anesthetizing children. And of course, when I was doing anesthesia, I loved doing kids. So what she would do is, and she used what was called an Esmark mask. She would sit the child up on the table and she would blow the nitrous oxide, we used to call it blow by, mm-hmm. um, to get it stunned enough that she could lay it down. But while she was doing this, she had toys that she would play with with the child. And if she didn't have her toys with her, she would take Dr. Crowell's watch and she would use the watch to entertain the child while she was anesthetizing him. And so that her dealing with children, she made things as pleasant as possible for those children. So that that shows me that she, or really, I mean, she was a very compassionate woman. And so um, I kind of want to throw that in, that she, she had this compassion as well as this drive about her that is so important to what the impact that she made on our profession. And just think about it in 11 short years, we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. In 2031, right around the corner. It will be here (laughs) before before you know it. Well, she, she definitely impacted all of us are sitting here at this table, and I can't All think the of, children of Agatha. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't think of anything to add to that. How about you, Jeremy? Well, the only thing I'm going to say is Sandy said a few minutes ago that, uh, you know, this, this organization and this profession wouldn't be what it is today without Agatha, but I would say to you two sitting here today that for all you've given and all the things you've done and all the students you've trained over the years, Sharon being one of them, my wife being one of them, um, and plenty of students, that this profession definitely wouldn't be what it is today without you two. And, you know, I have to think that that's much appreciated, not just by us, but by all the CRNAs you've affected throughout your lifetime. And I hope they get that through this series that we're doing with you two. And we're really excited about having you on more and doing more and more. So, Well, thanks for having had me here. Thanks. You're welcome. Well, I think that's a wrap. Uh, we want to thank you for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley. Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to learn more, please check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and leave us a review. Until next time.
Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. 